Hello, Heat Rocks listeners. Before we get started, just want to let you know that besides Raphael Sadiq on this episode, me and Morgan also appended a short section about the late, great Nipsey Hussle that will run at the end of the episode, which is why, if you noticed in your podcast player, this one's a little bit long. That's why. But please do stay tuned for that, especially for those of you who are impacted by the life and times and career of the one Nipsey Hussle. Hello, I'm Oliver Wong. And I'm Morgan Rhodes. You're listening to Heat Rocks. Every episode, we invite a guest to join us to talk about a heat rock. But today, we're not just bringing the fire, we're also bringing the earth and the wind. As we take <laughs> things back to 1975 to talk about That's the Way of the World. That's the Way of the World might be the greatest soundtrack ever recorded for a film nobody remembers. Filmmaker Sig Shore, having just helmed the exploitation classic Superfly, thought he was directing another cult masterpiece, one about a band simply called The Group, trying to navigate its way through record industry treachery. Alas, the movie never found its footing, but if Shore and his producers did anything right, it's that they cast The Group with a local Los Angeles band, Earth, Wind, and Fire, who naturally were also asked to record the soundtrack. Maurice White was a great believer in astrology, so he must have seen something align in the stars when That's the Way of the World was offered. After all, the group's first breakout came on the strength of another soundtrack, that for Melvin Van Peeble's groundbreaking 1971 Sweet Sweetback's badass song, the surprise hit film and soundtrack that ignited the exploitation era. By 1975, Earth, Wind & Fire had gone through major personnel changes, perhaps none more important than bringing on Philip Bailey, whose signature falsetto became the swinging uppercut to Maurice White's tenor hooks, armed with the Phoenix horn section and collaborating with legendary Chicago arranger-producer Charles Stepney, EWF minted an all-time heat rock with That's the Way of the World, mixing uplifting funk jams alongside the sweetest of ballads. I don't ordinarily put much stock in chart positions. Most of my heroes don't appear in no top 40, but it's saying something that with this album and its indelible single, Shining Star, Earth, Wind & Fire became the first African-American group to ever top both the pop album and single charts simultaneously. The producers behind the film, That's the Way of the World, took notice and re-released their flop, this time under the title, Shining Star. I guess you could say they were finally able to see the light. I'm so sorry. That's the way of the world was the album pick of our guest today, R&B legend Raphael Sadiq. Despite what my intros on here might otherwise suggest, most times I'm a woman of few words, particularly where it relates to actual heat rocks. When it comes to heat rocks, I find myself saying the same few words, usually some variation of ooh-wee and my lord, this is a jam. Over the last 30 years and where the work of our guest is concerned, I have said these few words time after time. Shout out to Cindy Lauper. 
I said them about little Walter and for the love of you, about slow wine and lay your head on my pillow. I've said it about anniversary and it never rains in Southern California, about whatever you want and feels good. I've said them about let's get down, Annie Mae, be here and you're the one that I like. I've said it about love that girl, ask of you, get involved. And I said it last week as I listened to his latest, the forthcoming, Jimmy Lee. Girl, I never... You get the point though, right? He's got hits. As both a solo artist and a member of the town's Tony, 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 Mm. Lucy Pearl, Uma, as a singer-songwriter, producer, and composer, he is without question one of the architects of modern rhythm and blues music, killing it in neo, future, and retro soul. My late uncle, the right reverend Fly, often struggled to describe the varied musical talents of one of my cousins and to defend his preference for spending more time in the studio than in the sanctuary. He would just say, he's in the choir, or he's in a band, or he'd be writing songs and stuff because he's smart about that music. Said that way, who could argue with that? And who can argue with this? 15 Grammy nods, three wins. Oscar nominations for his song, Mighty River, from Mudbound. Scores, Insecure, Underground, Godfather of Harlem. His pen game, guitar game, keyboards, collaborations, his relevance, his longevity, his vocals, his three decades of certifiable heat rocks, given the definition we use on this show as albums that are flammable, bangers, albums that bump eternally, that sear into your memory. The game is lucky to have him, and we're lucky to have a man who's in the choir, in the band, who be writing songs and stuff, who's smart about that music on our show. Raphael Sadiq, welcome to Heat Rocks. Thank you. Thank you. So you have picked one of my favorite bands, Earth, Wind & Fire, and That's the Way of the World. Tell us about your introduction to Earth, Wind & Fire, and then also your introduction to this album. Well, I think my introduction to Earth, Wind & Fire would be my, my sister, uh, Janice. Janice had a lot of vinyl. You know, she was, she had to be maybe age 17 or 18. Mm. And she would write Janice Marie Johnson on her records. We had to, you know, and she would say, don't touch my records. <laughs> and that's the first record that I think I touched. It was <laughs> Earth, Wind, and Fire. What about you, Oliver? I don't remember. I mean, this goes back to, I think, especially for a lot of the big groups of the 1970s. As, as a 70s baby, it's hard to remember when I first heard songs like, and I'm thinking of obviously things like Shining Star or September, just because I feel like they were always around me as a child. So yeah. I don't have a, a super distinctive memory per se, nor with this particular album, even though I have a lot of their, their hits from the 1970s. I, I can't recall when this came into my life, but my guess is if I had to put money on it, I probably picked it up at Amoeba at some point, like <laughs> in the 1990s. Sure. Yeah. Sure. And you? Um, you know, I've said on this show before, uh, that my earliest musical memory beyond sort of the gospel that we heard, but the the one that stayed with me the longest was actually um, my father playing the whole um, songs in the key of life. But outside of that, the one memory that I that's so precious, the music memory that's so precious to me with my father is his love of Earth, Wind, and Fire. Mm. And he's got a good voice, and I just remember him singing the words to "On Your Face." which is a song from Spirit. Whoa, I've been there before. Don't 
I just remember watching him sing, and he'd close his eyes, and he'd try and you know hit those notes lofty because we already know what Philip Bailey's working with yeah. uh, vocally. Yeah. And that's how I came to know uh, Earth, Wind, and Fire through Spirit. Raphael, I'm wondering because this album would have come out. I think when you were less than 10 years old, and I'm wondering what else was an adolescent Raphael Sadiq bumping in Oakland in the mid-1970s? The Jacksons, mm-hmm. for sure, would have been mm-hmm. the Jacksons. Definitely would have been Al Green. My mom was definitely listening to Yeah. 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 No, we talk, yeah, we talk about that. Uh, def, definitely would have been Al Green. But it seems to me Definitely would have been B.B. King. Hmm. You know you don't have to push But you'll find a bird in hand It's worth two in the bush no need to lock the barn door. It definitely been war. My neighborhood was sort of like a um Isaac, Isaac Hayes, the late Isaac Hayes, mm-hmm. I hung out with him one day and he said a couple of things to me that was, you know, spoke to me then. She said that in a neighborhood, when you're walking down the street and you walk into one's home, someone with your friend's home, there's always a different soundtrack in everyone's home. There's a different score of music playing. So it just wouldn't be in my, my home that I would I would hear my music from my sister or my next-door neighbor mom might be playing some different music. So every neighborhood had a different sort of vibe or a different car, you know, or I would go down the street and one of my friends, I James Foster, who was like sort of my my insurance guy now, <laughs> you know, but <laughs> like when I was in the fifth grade, I was in a band and he was listening to Earth, Wind & Fire and that's how I heard about George Duke. That's how I heard mm. about Stanley Clark, yeah. school days from these guys that were like in the 12th grade when I was sort of like in, in a grade school, fifth grade. So the neighborhood was filled with, you know, young musicians that were in high school that were really exceptionally like great at what they do so it was the the happiness of uh i think my first record i ever bought my first 45 was i bought it for like two dollars and 37 cents uh, <laughs> a 45 with the sh- uh, one sheet picture on the front of it was busting busting out rick james mm, good call <laughs> be a show about first 45s ever first 45 i don't think i've ever asked you what was your first 45 i don't remember the 45 because i it was for me was a 12 inch thing because i was in hip-hop right in the 80s and so and but i do know the first 12 inch which which was not it was hip-hop influence but was not like a straight up like rap single it was by kind of uh like a i want to say like a european new wave group with hip-hop influences called Two men, a trumpet, and a drum machine. I think was the name of the group. <laughs> Tired of getting pushed around. I still have it somewhere in my in my crib. Yeah. Oh 
always a tastemaker. Mine was uh, Parliament Funkadelic, not just Knee Deep. Mm. And uh, I wanted to buy a Prince record, but um, being churchy, I knew I wasn't going to be able to get that in the house. <laughs> wasn't allowed to do all of that? Nope. I saw the sleeve, and my brother was like, you know we can't bring that home, Morgan. You, they let you bring Parliament in the house? Uh, my uncle was like, this is okay. This is all right. George is cool. Yeah, this is okay. They're wearing diapers. It's cool. <laughs> but Prince had the black and white, you know, his his hands were up behind his head. My brother was like, nah, uh-uh. <laughs> you care about your life, you're going to go with this problem of Funkadelic, so... I just love this idea of Oakland kids forming garage bands and, and basically trying to play Earth, Wind & Fire songs. But I am wondering, as someone who grew up, you know, in the Bay, especially in Oakland of the, of the 1970s, you would have also had, you know, groups like Tower of Power. You would have groups like Graham Central Station. And so how does this figure in, especially a group as tied to L.A., at least from my mind, as Earth, Wind & Fire? How is it that these Bay Area kids are reacting to, the, to Earth, Wind & Fire in this constellation of other groups that are, like, literally rooted in Oakland as yeah. well? I'm quite sure the reasons are are similar similarities in groups. Um, I, I I was so fortunate to work with um, Maurice White while mm-hmm. he was here with us yeah. um, on a record called Show Me, and then yeah, that's a whole different story. I was so freaked out about that and didn't have anything ready. And all three of those guys walked in the room: Philip Bailey, Verdine, and, and Maurice. Mm-mm. And Mm-mm. I didn't have anything ready, and they, they're pretty much used to that. And I just sort of did everything on the spot. Yeah. And we finished it, but one of those nights, me and Maurice hung out till four in the morning, almost for a week. And this is during his, uh, you know, his illness of Parkinson's. And, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I also have a good friend named Brian Grant who plays in the uh, NBA for a minute. He has young Parkinson's too, so I knew how to be around it. And it's, you know, and now Brian's like one of my best friends. I love him to death, and I learned how to be around it. It's sometimes you feel bad, you know, but nobody wants you to feel that way about them. So yeah. I actually got a chance to hang out with Reese, and Reese was great. He hung out longer than everybody in the band. Like Verdine, they they had other things to do, and you know, I'm sure. Philip has had other things to do, but right. Philip came in and crushed it. <laughs> Dean came in and crushed it. But me and me and Maurice hung out along, and that to me as a little boy, like this is this is bigger than in a dream. He's sitting in my studio in North Hollywood, so I just took it upon myself to say, you know what, I'm just gonna try something. I just put on his records. I played all the records I wanted to play. <laughs> Because it's like drums, it's like African rhythms. Yeah. It gets everybody. Every song, I just wanted to hear what he said when I stopped them. And I didn't play the whole record. Some of them I did. Yeah. And he says to me, I said, so what were you, you know, what were you, what were you thinking about when you were making all this music, man? He said, he said, well, honestly, man, I was just, you know, trying to be like the boys from up around your way. Mm-hmm. I'm like, who is that? He said, Slide the Family Stone. Mm-hmm. Then you could hear it in the, ow, ow. Yeah. A slide. Right. And I was sitting there like, wow. And he said, you know, that's, I was really 
that's who we were trying to be, like Sliding the Family Stone. Very international, very right. pop, right. very popular. Not pop, what pop means today, but yeah, yeah. Sure. just popular records like Hot Fun in the Summertime. I love that you bring this up because one of the things I was thinking, especially when you listen to, not necessarily this album, but you listen to the early, like, 1971, 72 Earth, Wind & Fire albums, I feel like the Sly and the Family Stone influence is so heavy on yeah. those in particular. And by the time you get to this phase of Earth, Wind & Fire, especially with a song like Shining Star, mm. which to me just feels like, you know, close kin to something like, um, you know, Everybody Is a Star, mm -hmm. right? By um, Or Family Affair, for that matter. Sure. Is that... The ways in which, and we've talked about this in, in previous shows, um, about how Sly and the Family Stone went from being this kind of representative of the summer of love in, in the Bay Area and San Francisco in the late 60s to entering into like a really dark, dystopian, you know, Nixonian period by the, by the early late, late 60s to the early 70s. In a lot of ways, I feel like Earth, Wind & Fire kind of picked up that mantle of, of optimism and of spirituality yeah. that for a variety of reasons, like Sly and his group, moved away from. But EWF was there to kind of pick up that mantle and take it to levels that I don't think that even you wouldn't have predicted listening to like Sly of the, of the late 60s. So I love the fact that that's who Maurice and probably, you know, his brothers and other folks were listening to as their template in a lot of ways. Right? Yeah, definitely. You know, um, Maurice had this whole thing about, you know, I, I had these things about you know, when you make a record, you want that impact from an audience. And, you know, I was in a few talent shows growing up, so the whole thing was about when you see these talent shows, like we see, like, the five heartbeats and you see, see shows and you start singing and girls fall out. You know, like, <laughs> yeah. ah, ah. You, know you could <laughs> sort of mix Earth, Wind & Fire in there, too, just that impact initial, like, mm. So I said, what were you thinking about? I, said, I used to think about talent shows, how to make people, and he says to me, well, I was thinking more about Broadway and musicals. Mm. And I said, ah, oh, yeah, I got to think different now. But it's, of course, when you hear fantasy, that's, it feels like a musical. Oh my God. So that's why, you know, all the magic tricks and, you know, as you say, dun, dun, dun. It's like so Broadway. So to, so to have to think about him loving like Sly and all the twang that Sly had yeah. and the guitars, the, 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 the gram, the, uh, the early Earth, Wind & Fire bands had it, for him to be able to mix both and take it to that level where you're talking about keep it spiritual <clears throat> but at the same time have these songs like Would You Mind? Ooh. Would you mind If I looked in your eyes And I hypnotized And I lose my pride By that time I'm in high school and we're on a, on this bus traveling with a choir and a jazz band, and the whole bus is like, ah, 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 ah. just to hear tenth, eleventh, and twelfth graders singing that loud, just that part. Yeah, you know, just think about we were kids. Yeah, that's incredible. And we just. One person starts humming that melody, yep. and we, the whole bus, Castlemont High School, we're singing that song. We talk a lot about and hear about about vibe and about, you know, the feel of the band, especially mm. upon first listen. 
So your first impressions when you heard that's the way of the world, did you listen to it cover to cover? Did you get stuck on anything? What was your your first impressions of the of the album? Listening to that album, it just felt like they felt like an extension of my family mm. in my home, you know, and I just I don't know, I started listening to Yearning and Learning. Mm. And Yearning and Learning just caught me and I went from Yearning and Learning to uh Gratitude, the live album. I mm. didn't get a chance to go mm. to the actual concert, but Yearning Learning is on that live record. I didn't get to go to the show so the show was you know opening up the album cover mm-hmm. and letting the live music play and me sit there and, and watch Verdine flipping circles and Ooh. you know and, um, and Freddie Wright his drums jumping in the air turning so it was a, it was an added extension to me listening to the record without it being live so I got this experience from from listening to the actual vinyl yeah to a live concert and people reacting to something I heard without people reacting to it. Yeah. So to find out we're all reacting the same way was a good thing. I was going to mention that um, Earth, Wind, and Fire uh, says that uh, that's the way of the world is their national anthem. Do you think that's the definitive Earth, Wind, and Fire song? That's a question. Yes, I would have to agree. Yeah, but I just think Earth, Wind, and Fire is, uh, they just didn't have one. That's the way the world may be an definitive song for them. It may be like this this anthem for them, but it's because they made so many. So many haters. I think they have melodies that that are anthems yeah. with no words. Yeah. I mean, I write a song for you. I remember sitting around with my friends trying to sing that, and of course we struggled um, mightily. Um, Be Ever Wonderful, um, Imagination. <laughs> yeah. um, you just go on and on and on. And um, sometimes they have on Twitter, they'll be like, um, name a more iconic duo. And they'll just put two random things like, you know, strawberries and shortcake. And I'm always <laughs> tempted to be like Maurice White and Philip Bailey because the way their vocals complemented each other to me was just a thing of beauty. I always saw um, Philip Bailey as a noun because it's a thing of beauty. <laughs> and Maurice White is the verb. All that ow, ow, and, and how they would flow together, that was action. Yeah. But just so beautifully arranged together, which is, is, for this album, is probably a credit to Charles Stepney. Oh, yeah, 100%. Wow, he's a a legend, and even you know, the stories I hear from, like, Verdine, from Dean. Dean will always tell me about how they would sit down together and actually come up with bass lines. Mm. Charles Stephanie. So with him and he was definitely their heart and soul. And also Freddie White, the drummer. Sure. Like when you if you look at a picture of Freddie White in that live gratitude album, look at how he's smiling and he's looking at the camera. Like you know, it's a, it's about how you smile on the track and how you feel. Like he said, it's a documentary where Freddie says the camera comes on him, he just looks and said, I was born to play this music. <laughs> I was born to make you move. I'm like, Wow. 
for some reason, I just had this image of, I think it's a very famous clip of Bill Withers playing live. This is in the early 70s. And James Gadsden is on the drums. And Gadsden just has like the biggest smile on his face. And I think shades and just looks like the coolest dude in the room, <laughs> uh, even next to Bill. And so, yeah, that, that, that image of, of, uh, of Freddie's kind of evokes that same one as well. Um, I'm glad you really brought up Stepney because I think, oh, yeah. and, and maybe it's because, I mean, he passed away way too soon. He, he, he died a year after uh, this album was recorded in 76. He was only 45 years old. And I don't think he's the kind of household name for other Ranger producers, even though I think his body of work, if only you're looking at the early to mid 70s, I mean, the stuff that he's doing at, at Cadet Concept in Chicago with with Rotary Connection, with Minnie Ripperton, with Ooh. Ramsey Lewis, with Marlena Shaw, and of course with Earth, Wind, and Fire. The Dells. I mean, yeah. I mean, incredible. And Stephanie's someone who I think for a lot of record diggers, because we just see his name pop up in so many liner notes, we get used to it. But I think for a lot of other folks, they don't recognize like how big of a genius it was. And that given that Maurice had worked with him when Maurice was still out in Chicago, they still had that relationship, which allowed Stephanie to come out to L.A. to work with this group. I think it's so fundamental to understanding what about this album was so magical was, was really Stephanie's influence, in addition to everyone else you know, coalescing around it. You know, I have to be honest, I really didn't know um, ab- about Charles Stepney until the Earth, Wind & Fire stuff. I mm. didn't know until I was an adult about the chess records. I didn't know Maurice was a drummer. Um, I had no idea about their relationship. Um, I started thinking about Stepney uh, when I was thinking about um, Come to My Garden. Mm. And also, uh, as I just saw Us and the end credit song was Les Fleurs. And it was such a sublime moment because I was like, as a music supervisor, I was like, okay, that's fire. Interesting pick. But the way they rolled over that world. And I looked at my friend and she was like, Minnie Ripperton. And then we both were like, Charles Stepney. It was a perfect use of a song. And I read a great quote from Ramsey Lewis who said, Charles Stepney could take manuscript paper and write a full score for symphony orchestra or big band or trio like we would write a letter. He'd just be on a plane and he'd start writing. Mm. What's, what else is special about Charles Stepney besides this, this inherent genius? What else do you see on this album that is Charles Stepney's footprint? I was a late bloomer on Charles to myself too. Yeah. So I didn't really know exactly every song he did with Earth, Wind & Fire and <clears throat> until I would, I, when I would sit down with, with the guys and they would tell me. And I, I know more stories, personal stories about him, um, his relationship to Verdine, mm. you know, because uh, you know, Verdine was a kid coming into Earth, Wind & Fire. Right. So, yeah. Like I said earlier, just, you know, me being a bass player, you know, um, a first that's my first instrument. So to sit down, say he would sit down with him and come up with bass lines. There's so much to discover with, with Manny Rippleton and Stevie Wonder and all these people that were together. And I'm actually learning what you just said. Now some of the people I didn't even know. I didn't know. You just said the Dells, and I was like, what? <laughs> Love is blue. I, I, didn't know any, yeah. okay. I didn't know anything about that. Now I'm going to have to go to uh, my friend Adrian Young's, his store, and like, you know, bro, I need all Charles Steph. I need <laughs> all the vinyl. I'm walking out of here like, I need all the vinyl now. I was not... But I just knew I, I was so caught up into Earth, Wind, and Fire and um, Minnie Rippleton. Um, I could hear it now. I didn't even know that. Right. Yeah. 
I found this clip online of some of the members of Earth, Wind and Fire talking about Charles Stepney, and I just want to play a little bit of it. We co-produced together and, and write songs together and the whole thing. And Charles Stepney was definitely the, the dad in our group. He was the cat, as we say. He was the one that would tell Maurice to shut up. And Maurice would go, okay. He became like the coach of, of our whole existence as far as the band was concerned. I was the quarterback. He was the one that Maurice respected. He was the one that had to, that could write it, arrange it, play it, show us how to sing it, and tell us when it's wrong. Speaking of musicianship, a track that doesn't get talked about a lot on this album is Africano. Mm. And I play it all the time. And in prep for the chat and listening to it, and I didn't get a chance to really get into the personnel, but I was like, who is on horns? Who is on horns? Every time I listen to that song, I'm like, horns. People don't talk about that song, but that's a jam. And one thing that I think sets... Um, Earth, Wind, and Fire, apart from a lot of bands, and a lot of bands that I love, is just the heavy-duty musicianship. And, I mean, we could... They're two different things to me. They're two different experiences that work together and separately. There's Maurice White and Philip Bailey and just the vocals. If they were just singing by themselves, that's already otherworldly, if there was no music. And then there's the music. There's the the African influences. There's... There's all that stuff, and so that's one of my favorite songs. It doesn't get talked about a lot, but I had to, I had to bring that one up and ask, you know, as a musician, as a composer, as a ranger yourself, what do you think of that song? As a whole, I just always felt like, you know, we had African Liberation Day in my neighborhood a lot. So you wake up on a Saturday mm-hmm. morning, you hear nothing but percussions in the park across the street, and you know, I didn't, I really wasn't, didn't know what a kalimba was until Maurice White. He did a lot of work to really try to bring that in. And, and for listeners who are not familiar, kalimba is the thumb piano, which is, I think, yes. primarily West African origin. You hear, you hear it in a lot of different West African cultures. It has that distinctive sound to it. And I feel like Maurice White tried to bring the kalimba into the game in the same way that like folks like Ravi Shankar brought in the sitar just to have that little kind of <laughs> that extra. sonic difference. You know, he might have been the only, Maurice White might have been the only person to really do it. I think... Uh, you know, the Heath brothers did it on like the Smile and Billy Suite. I'm I'm going way off into a tangent it's here. Okay. But the Kalimba is so is such a distinctive sound. I've always loved how it sounds. Have you ever had a chance to play with one like it's just it's so pleasurable in terms of what it makes. But yeah, sorry, to your point. I was just re- I forgot the saxophonist that plays for uh that we lost some years ago. I think he lived in Inglewood. Mm. He played on this record. It's mm. part of the horn section. Phoenix horns. horns. Phoenix horns. Phoenix horns. Yeah, I, I, don't, I don't know. Earth, Wind & Fire was just so full of rhythm. I felt like it, rhythm was in every song, you know, even but the the early records, you know, like Kalimba. Drum had, song. Drum song. They had a lot of instrumentals. Yeah. Yeah, but drums and percussions and, you know, even knowing the background from, from Reese pl- playing drums on a lot of yeah. records, like I Can't Let Go. Ooh. That's that's Reese on drums, which I thought was Freddie. And um, 
they say, no, that's Reese. I can't let go. When I hear that, that I'm is just, fire. The rhythm of Earth, Wind, and Fire is like, like they say, drums is what connects us from the other, every part of the world. It's just drums. And, yeah. um, the titles that, that Reese came up with, the things he talked about, um, the bands he put together and the times that they spent is what that record is. We need to come back to the horn issue. Yes. We do need to come back to that. But first, we're just going to take a break from our conversation with Raphael Sadiq about Earth, Wind, and Fires. That's the way of the world. We will hear from some of our sibling Max Fun podcasts. Don't go anywhere. You wept as we crafted the tragic tale of Jar Jar, a Star Wars story. Yeah. Dude, like he forgives Darth Vader. Misa <laughs> still love you, Annie. <laughs> you gasped out loud at the shocking twists of Face Off 2. Face is wild. He takes his kid's face. What? <laughs> now, we're writing an entire screenplay week by week on Story Bricks Season 2, Heaven Heist. Hey folks, Freddie Wong here with some exciting news about Story Break, the writer's room podcast where three Hollywood professionals have one hour to spin cinematic gold. We're shaking up our format by turning Heaven Heist, one of our favorite ideas we've ever come up with on the show, into a full screenplay. Heaven Heist is an action comedy about a crew of misfit gangsters robbing the celestial bank of heaven. Think of Coco meets Point Break. Join us as we write this crazy movie scene by scene and get an inside look at the screenwriting process on our podcast Story Break every Thursday on MaximumFun.org. Hello, I'm Mujan Safagari, and I play a bunch of characters on Mission to Zix, an improvised science fiction podcast on Maximum Fun, and this is our incredible sound designer, Shane. Hello. Now, Shane makes it possible for me to play a thousand billion characters in our galaxy. Such as the Bajarian Jane, Ship of the Stars. And the Enforcer Joy, prepare to eat pancakes. And wait, let's get dusted up, baby. An Emissary Turk Madikin. Hey, I just got out of their amp. And the Horrible Oh, also there are five other cast members, and we'll give them just all a second to say hi. Uh, hello. Yeah, that's enough. Okay, so the season finale of Mission to Six is coming out next week, so it's the perfect time to dive in and catch up with our intrepid crew as they explore the Zix Quadrant. So give us a listen to Mission to Zix on Maximum Fun. And we are back on Heat Rocks, and we're talking Earth, Wind, and Fires. That's the way of the world with our special guest, Raphael Sadiq. So in the first half, we're talking about the importance of the Phoenix Horns, which was the horn section for Earth, Wind, and Fire. And the 70s was the time for amazing soul funk horn sections. We mentioned Power Power earlier. earlier. You had the Barkays. So important to the sound of R&B in that era. And a couple of our listeners on our Facebook group wanted to know, what happened to the horns by the 80s? Why did the horns drop out? Like this, it was such a signature part of R and B in that era, and then suddenly it feel like was it because synths came through? Like what what happened in the eighties? I think it was MIDI came out. You know, bands are um, expensive. <laughs> no, just we don't we don't get along. Yeah, you know, so we are people. I think uh, the sea creatures in the bottom of the ocean get along better than bands. <laughs> 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 but that was the beauty of bands to not to get along and not get along because. Or get along all the way, and somebody may have 
something different happening outside in their lives and different things are happening in people's lives. A lot of good moods, a lot of bad moods, a lot of different vibes. But when you come in the room, your instrument is your love. And you come in and it creates this chemistry that, you know, that happens, you know. And that was the nucleus of a band. You know, somebody comes to practice with a gun and put on a bass drum and said, don't speak to me today. That was happening in Oakland. Damn. You know, so that's what made the music. So as soon as MIDI came out, it was over. Mm. You can play fake horns. People just, I'd rather deal with fake horns than deal with this horn section. <laughs> and they sound terrible. Fake horns are the worst thing you could ever. Sure. It's like eating dirt for lettuce. Were, the, <laughs> were there clicks? Did like woodwinds and in band culture, did woodwinds, you know, bond <laughs> together and stay away from percussions? Did, nah. No, did brass or just... There was I just think, collective beef. Woodwind sort of lost the battle in R and B. They definitely lost the battle. Um, maybe they start playing more classical, playing more orchestras, more orchestral stuff, and, and scoring. You have to really go that route or play on some straight ahead jazz records. But in R and B, they lost the battle. Right. But really, the world lost when that when those things didn't you know stay yeah. together. The oboe needs to make a comeback. <laughs> oh, the oboe, yeah, definitely. We shouted out woodwinds on another episode, didn't we? I don't know. I, used, I played flute in middle school, so I I got a rep for the flutes. Well, so. I play the recorder, and it's not sexy, but <laughs> I was so proud. Blackbird. Listen. I think I mentioned this in a previous episode, but Raphael, your, your point about, you know, MIDI allowing uh, dysfunctional groups to not have to even deal with each other recalls a story about how Sly Stone started messing with the Rhythm King uh, early mm. drum machine because him and Greg Erico weren't getting along and, and Erico stopped, you know, the, the drummer in, in Sly and the Family Stone. Erico just stopped returning Sly's calls so Sly had this little device and they started playing with it and that, you know, really transformed their sound and obviously the, the, just the role of the drum machine transformed the sound of, of music in general. And so the relationship between technology and band dysfunction, I hadn't thought about the MIDI aspect, but yeah, that's that's exactly right too. yeah. I heard Jim Morrison talk about that way before MIDI came out. He was like, it's going to be this thing that comes out and you're not going to need band members. I don't know if his friend was in the tech. He just knew that. <laughs> he was on point. Now, we talked about Maurice, and I love what you said about your conversations with him. But based on what you said, it just seems like Maurice was just that dude, just cool. And one of my favorite songs on here is All About Love. And the moment is probably the 257 mark where Maurice just starts <laughs> spitting game about beauty. Mysticism <laughs> and so on. Now, I want you to stop whatever you're doing. Just stop. Just stop. I say that to people all the time. Just stop. Just stop. <laughs> you know, they say there's beauty in the eyes of the beholder, you know? Which I say is a natural fact because you are as beautiful as your thoughts, right on? You know, like with us, for instance, you know, like we've studied all kind of cult sciences and astrology and mysticism and world religion and so forth, you did. I love when uh, brothers talk on records, especially around this time, because uh, yeah, uh, this was that era. My guy, my uncle used to play that uh, that float on. And he'd be like, my oh yeah, I'm a, I'm a, whatever his sign was yeah. and stuff. My but, name is Larry. Yeah, and I'm a Leo or whatever sign, the sign he was. But Maurice's rap was different because, like you said, he's talking about mysticism. He's like, listen, we about astrology. We about you know, we about all this deep stuff, and you can tell that you know, brothers that whose album cover they all stand in front of pyramids. 
those are some uh, those are some deeper brothers. But when we ask about favorite moments, that is certainly one of mine. I think mine. This is hard because this album has so many great moments. But the one that I always come back to is the very end of Shining Star, when basically the song goes a cappella. In addition to the having the stereo separation of the of the vocalists in both of your ears. And then it goes into the very beginning of That's the Way of the World. Mm. So from a sequencing point of view, I don't know if that was purposeful. I'm going to assume it is, but even if it was a happy accident, it's, it's kind of amazing. Shining star for you to see what your life can truly be. Shining star for you to see what your life can truly be. Yeah, that was on purpose. Yeah. It's too clean. It's too clean for it not to be. That was on purpose. And see, my my part of that song is, is, is Dean's bass line. That's a sample. I mean, that's just, uh, yeah. that's the gritty Earth, Wind, and Fire. That's, that's my favorite Earth, Wind, and Fire. Along those lines, do you have a favorite moment on this album? Something that every time you hear it just mm, gets you. I think it's after the guitar solo that that grows up chromatic. Bum, 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 bum. It's a snare hit. Bum, 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 bum. You just know it's just firing off. Like I feel like that's an anime. I feel like. It's like an animation cartoon about to bust out with some superhero powers. <laughs> like Earth, Wind, and Fire was definitely like I wasn't in really in the comic books as a kid. Yeah, but my comic books were were Earth, Wind, and Fire. They were like power groups. I like I like power bands. I call mm-hmm. I made up this thing in my head for power bands. So, you know, like Grand Central Station. You mm-hmm. know, Larry was a, power, a a figure for me. Like he was a superhero. Earth, Wind, and Fire, Parliament, Funkadelic. You know, Commodores. They were all like superheroes. Like. Those were my comic books. And yeah. so, like, you hear that, bam, 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 you know, those were my, but that was my special record, Shining Star, because every neighborhood had to, you know, that's a, that's a, that's a guitar solo in the beginning that's like, it's a bass solo, and there's two guitars playing that. Horns as well. He's like, hey. I don't know what he said, but it's like, oh. <laughs> yeah, that's Reese. I want to <laughs> j- just drop in one of my favorite moments too, another one, because I can have many. I you love this album. Um, it's it's two different instrumental pieces, and I think one comes at the beginning. It begins at like the 315 mark of Happy Feeling. I don't know what they're doing there, and I don't know why they finished it, why they didn't finish it, but it's also the same moment on All About Love. It's just this little instrumental piece. It's funny, I never knew the title of that song. I didn't either. So when I saw it, I was like, happy feeling. Because I only I only listened to boom. <laughs> I was so lost in like the groove, you happy feel. I'm like, is this Frankie Bradley? Yeah, <laughs> not going to Earth Wind and Fire. Could, right? could be though. 
could be. <laughs> I think Shining Star has to be the fire track. I mean, it's it's just it's the group's biggest hit. It's it's such an incredible song, and we, we've spent some time on it. But we got to show love to like the two big big ballads off of here, Reasons and the yeah. title track. And I was trying to figure out which of them is better, and I realized that's just an impossible question because they're both so good in their own way. But we actually haven't talked a lot about Reasons, Morgan. I know you got some thoughts on this. Well, to me, it's such a flex. It's like Philip Bailey's summer camp. But you could say that about a lot of songs because his vocals, the way he would stretch out. I just think it's just such a beautiful, beautiful uh, show of Philip Bailey's falsetto. If there's a falsetto Hall of Fame, Mm -hmm. Philip Bailey's got to be in there. Mm Got to be Curtis Mayfield. Got to be Eddie Kendricks. There's got to be a falsetto Hall of Fame. Delphonics. Delphonics. Al Green. Al Green, Smokey, but Philip is basically in this category, and um, and reasons for me is such a show of that pretty, pretty um, falsetto. And after the love game has been played, all our illusions are just a parade, and all our reasons start to fade. Our hat skates, they were blue. With a red stripe and a white stripe on them with some red wheels on them. And I remember I was skating on the skates and my friend's dad had a band. And they were in the garage playing and we went back there and and I they were playing. And I was like, ask your dad, can I play one of the songs with the band? And they just sort of, he's like, dad, my friend wants to play bass. And the, the band looked at me. They don't laugh, but they just kind of like, <laughs> we don't really have to, you know, we rehearse and whatever. They just kind of played it off. So I waited for maybe five minutes, six minutes, and I said, I tapped my friend on the shoulder. I said, hey, say it again, but say it this way. Tell him that I want to sit in. Because I've already been playing in clubs, you know, and everything. So he's like, Daddy said he want to sit in. And then they stopped. And they said, okay. They gave me the bass player, gave me his bass. And he said, what do you want to play? I said, reasons. Mm. So they count. I said, boom, boom, boom. And so they knew from there when I kicked it off. They were, And I was better than that bass player. I knew I, I was taking grown men out. That was my thing. Shots, I was, fi- shots fired. I, I was going around the neighborhood taking men out. I was like, you know, I looked at him function and go to their concert. I looked at the bass player. I'm like, they're playing Chase Me. I was like, I'm better than him. But I knew I wasn't better than Larry Graham. Sure. You know, so I knew I, who I were, wasn't better than. But when I, it's funny when I was talking to the guys in Earth and the Fire, Philip told me, he said, you know, everybody loves to sing that song, Reasons That They Want. If they wanted their wedding, but it's it's totally opposite. It's not a it's a right. terrible song for a wedding. <laughs> sure, it's basically you just you know you're out there doing other things. Right, 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 right. But everybody wants to hear that song at their wedding. It's totally opposite of that. There are a lot of wedding songs that I think are inappropriate for the occasion, but somehow feel like they're right. Yeah, that's that's, a, that's, that's a how beautiful show. Earth Wind and Fire was. Yeah. They can make something yeah. sound so you know inappropriate for something. It's like two definitions. People just went there. It sounds beautiful until he's like, now I'm craving your body. Temperature's right. And I don't, <laughs> don't want to feel I'm in the wrong, wrong place, place to, to be, be real. real. <laughs> Play that at a church wedding and my family would be like, okay, you know what? They <laughs> might just sing it. They probably Somebody won't even, will. They won't, I don't think they will know. I, I bet money that people will sing that song at a wedding. I'm sure from what Philip said, many a times yeah. people sing it at the wedding. Sure. Right. 
It's beautiful. And, See, it, and it is a flex. That could have been a 45 you could have brought in the house on I, the under, and no one would have realized you know, the inappropriate. That's like As We Lay. A Shirley Murdoch song is the same thing. We forgot to face one simple fact. We both belong to someone else. As we slept the night away. It is. And and I think we let Shirley make it because she got those Church of God in Christ vocals yeah. and she got them Koji vocals. She does. We forgot about tomorrow as we lay, but at some point I was like, hmm. I was like, I don't think this is. I think she's talking about. And then I was like, oh man. But shout out to Shirley Murdoch. Speaking of staying real, right? You know, Eric Sermon. For for those of us who grew up, you know, listening and, and watching EPMD music videos, in the video <laughs> for Eric Sermon, "Stay Real," there's a, a, a shot of him in the shower singing "Reasons." Uh, wow. can, you, can you cue that up real quick? Christian? Gotta hear that. Ugh. I'm a man of many wishes. Dream a hope and reminisces. He's singing about as good as most of us sing reasons. I was about to say, to that's all of us doing reasons. Is this, there's so many good albums. And um, I meant what I said, you know, early on. I'm just like such an Earth, Wind & Fire fan. And and they're just one of those groups that I, I just, they can make no mistakes for me. I love everything. That's the Way of the World is not my favorite album. I go back and forth between all in all, I am in spirit. I go mm. back and forth, and and I like open your eyes because it's it's a it's very spiritual. Did you pick this because this is your favorite Earth, Wind, and Fire album, or do you think it's the best Earth, Wind, and Fire album? It's the one that I was wanted to learn in the beginning. It's it's the one of the songs that you know put me, um, you know, when I look at the album cover and everything, you know, you don't. It's just one of the ones that. I really like, but mm-hmm. to be honest, I don't see Earth and the Fire as one album. I think the whole, every album, you know, Earth and the Fire is an album. Mm-hmm. There's not one mm. album. But if I had to pick one to talk about, this would be the one. Yeah. Somebody asked me, this is the first time I've ever been approached about a subject matter like this. And my four founders, that's these are these guys. Yeah. And so that's the way of the world is the one that I want, probably want to teach. The new listeners who don't know about it, like, start from here. That was and then be, grow yeah. to, to yeah. all different levels of Earth, Wind & Fire. Because there's so many levels. You can go back to Ramsey Lewis. Yeah. You know, or you can just listen to instrumental, or you can go back to the emotions. Oh, mm-hmm. my God. There's so many different levels of Earth, Wind & Fire. So it's not, for the subject matter, there's not an album. There's right. just a, a lifestyle. Earth, Wind & Fire is a lifestyle. And speaking of the emotions, I think you were the one that told me, because I didn't know, what record label were you telling me they were on? And I had no idea. They started on Stacks Full. Yeah, and I had no idea. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't know about that, but uh, Boogie Wonderland is a, is, a, uh, is a vocal clinic. Ask my neighbor. Oh, right. God. No one's. That's Maurice.
Never ask the friends I hang around. No, I mean, I think along similar lines, one of the greatest songs that Maurice and Earth, Wind & Fire put together was really Sun Goddess for Ramsey Lewis. Mm. Yes. Which is really much more, to me, of an EWF song. And this is not to take anything away from Ramsey Lewis. But, no. I mean, Maurice, I think, either wrote or co-wrote it, produced it. Like, it's most of the players on that song. And it sounds like such, Sun Goddess is such an Earth, Wind & Fire song, even if it doesn't appear under their name. Yeah, I guess, but, you know, Ramsey is the body of that, and being that they had this working relationship yeah. back in Chicago, it's like ha- having Charles together. He, it's, like, it's, it's like Maurice coming back home and saying, let me pay it forward yes. to sure. a guy who let me sit on drums in his trio right. and play That's drums. Kid, like, yeah. let me show you, let me put you around this other level of, like, music and, and mix who you are. I mean, when I see, I think about it often about Ramsey Lewis and, Who's my Ramsey Lewis mm-hmm. that I could sit with? Who's that good that I can bring to what I do? Yeah, you know. So those those are the things you learn from from you know Maurice White and Charles and and, and Ramsey. Those are the things you should pay attention to, like the combination of people they put together, what instruments were in the room, what talents were in the room. You know, I think we have a lot of that now. Um, it's a lot of great musicians out here right now in L.A. That sure, are, right are I'm not, I don't want to say they're all babies of Earth, Wind & Fire, but they are the babies of jazz and R&B and their right. parents sure. and the culmination of different things. I don't know if you've ever covered a song off this album, but if you were to, which one would you pick and why? I would never cover Earth, Wind & Fire <laughs> song. That's totally disrespectful for me to do it. Only thing I would cover on that song is putting it, the record, the vinyl back in the cover <laughs> and putting it down so I can see it and look at it like when I was a kid. I love to look at their album covers and all that. I just, yeah. I just enjoy it too much. Um, yeah. Could you imagine someone else doing it? And if so, who? no, no, I couldn't imagine just, anyone else. doing It's too it. blasphemous. Yeah, man. It's just, you know, you got to have the moves like Reese. You need Philip there. You need the percussion. Sure. You need that. You need that. But there was an album of, of covers. I think of earth, wind and fire covers. And I think Bilal might've been on that album. I think Mashonda Yochella was on that mm. album. Mm. Earth, Wind & Fire is so precious, and when Maurice White passed, a station out here, um, KJLH did a an all-day uh, Earth, Wind & Fire tribute, and I just was like, the not just because I'm a fan, I was like, there were just so many hits, and to your point, um, there's no there was no separation of albums. It was just it just felt like the Earth, Wind, and Fire experience from every level. Musicianship, vocals. They even play. They did play Gratitude, so you got to hear all that. And um, I'm just a fan. the The last question I have, or the second to last, would be, what does Earth, Wind, and Fire have to teach, uh, not just bands but musicians? What is the work of Earth, Wind, and Fire? I think what. All of us can learn from Earth, Wind & Fire as musicians is that they learned how, as good as they were, they weren't just playing chops or just showing how good they were as separate musicians. They were able to come together and make a record, for a three-minute record, that was an impactful record for radio and for the whole world. Sometime now, I think it's, it's hard for musicians because when you work on these chops, you don't really know how to turn them into records. 
and when you make records and you just I don't want to say showing out, but it's just something you practice. It's your, it's your craft. Sometimes it's hard for people to make a record that's an actual record with all this, you know, bringing all these different instrumentations together, different arrangements of horns and flutes. And then it's like maybe a, a vocal and it's a cross reference of a of something going through. Make up your mind. What I learned from um, my godfather is James Levi, who played drums with Herbie Hancock and the Headhunters back in the day. And he 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 would be in the room with us for the cowbell and like it's right here, it's right here. We're playing, you know, baby, we can do. It. And he's like, we're here. This is right here. And he said, we we can sing together, but we all can't. At the end of eight bars, everybody can't riff. Right. Let one person riff. Yeah. And then you look for the next eight, and maybe the drummer take the role. And Earth, Wind, and Fire had that tripled that it was so much happening and they brought it all together in the same time they brought impact songs for radio which is unheard of mm-hmm. now i mean i talked to lionel richie lionel said when they came out with gratitude and all that, he said that's when he wanted to sing country music he was like it's over <laughs> he was like Salem down the line was like, it was too much they were too much for everybody I mean the Jackson 5 the the, the, um, the Jackson's albums with all the really Quincy that was Earth, Wind & Fire because sure. because Maurice wouldn't let Quincy and them use his horn section Oh, so they went and got a different horn section and that all those records, that's all EWF off the wall because they used to come there and watch Earth, Wind, and Fire practice in the hangar. I know this from the guys. So, Earth, Wind, and Fire was that's what, what they were. They were teaching, but Quincy was a guy who could do it too. But Earth, Wind, and Fire was the, was the stone, mm. the true stone for all the horns and guitars and all that energy going through a record. He wouldn't let nobody use the horn section for a while. And then, of course, later on, Phil Collins stole the horn section for yeah. Sue Sudia. Yeah. You know, things 80s. just happened. And was, <laughs> now I was always looking at Phil Collins. Ah, you just stole my boy's horn section, boy. <laughs> <laughs> but I got to say. It's a great uh, horn section to steal. Yeah, yeah for sure. But I got to say, uh, Phil Collins and uh, and Philip Bailey, Easy Lover, is yeah. uh, one, one of my all-time jams. And before. Mine is Chinese Walls. Ooh, mm-hmm. our children of the ghetto. Okay, good. <laughs> we go. We go all day. All I like day, children right. of the ghetto. I wanted to 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 mention this before we get out of here that um, that's the way of the of the world was also a soundtrack to a movie by the same name. Right. And Earth, Wind, and Fire played uh, a movie. The, that, the band. I mean, has anyone here ever seen the movie? I heard it was was not good. No. Harvey Keitel. They young heart. Young, young well, heart. Relatively young. Like so, late youngish. 30s. Yeah. yeah. It's also a musical, right? Uh, it might be, yeah, yeah, yeah. If it's not, it definitely, it definitely should be. Um, we ask this of our guests um, on every episode. If you had to describe um, this album in three words, what would they be? Ooh, three words. That's a hard one for Earth and Fire. It's have to be so damn good. Hey, that's it. <laughs> so hard after all. That's it. That's it. <laughs> Well, that will do it for this episode of Heat Rocks with our special guest, Raphael Sadiq. His new album is called Jimmy Lee. You will be, I'm assuming, will you be touring by the end of uh, 2019? Yeah, I'll be doing some tours. Uh, I'll have some dates in like August uh, this year. Um, 
headlining Afropunk in Paris. Okay. Mm. Playing One Fest in Atlanta soon. And um, Dave uh, released his August 23rd. I play the El Rey here okay. in Los Angeles, California. And the dates are just popping up because yeah, the record is, uh, you know, I, I played somewhere last night with a, with a house band. I sang my new single, which is Something Keeps Calling. Great single, by the way. Yeah, and it was funny because I, I really don't know all the words by heart, so I just held my cell phone up and just started singing off the phone. It was funny. It was good. <laughs> it was good. Thank you for that, um, for the Gospel Quartet uh, song. Oh, oh yeah, that's my uncle. Yeah, my uncle. I love Quartet. Reverend so. Elijah Baker. Where can folks find you online? You can find me at um, Twitter, just Raphael Sadiq. You can find me on you know, Instagram, Raphael underscore Sadiq. And I guess I don't look at Facebook much, but I guess you can find me there too. <laughs> I try to I try not to be on that stuff like that, but I'm I'm there. But you you really want to find me? Come see me at a show. Yeah, you really want to see the real me. Well, thank you so much for coming through and sharing, especially for this group and, and your relationship to the members. And, and rest in peace to Maurice White and, indeed and everyone else. But it, it was, this was such a pleasure to have you here. Thank you. Pleasure thank to be here. Thank you so much. Thank you. Morgan and I have a special segment to append to this episode, and it doesn't really have to do much with the artist or album or guest that you just heard, but rather it has to do when this episode is coming out. On August 15th, Los Angeles rapper Nipsey Hussle would have turned 34 years old, and he, of course, was killed earlier this year. Morgan and I had talked about doing something around Nipsey ever since his passing, and we thought that to honor his memory and honor what he meant to the musical community here in Los Angeles, we would do something that celebrates not his death, but rather the life of Nipsey Hussle on what would have been, again, his 34th birthday. So Morgan, I'm going to turn things mostly over to you because this was an artist where, even though I was aware of his presence, was not someone that I really followed much at all. And I know for you, Nipsey was more than just you know, an important artist out of Los Angeles. He also represents something of where you grew up and the people that you knew from that area, which is the Crenshaw District of Los Angeles. Sure. Yeah, I first became aware of him through a video um, for the song Hustle in the House. And I remember remarking to my brother, wow, because it was so area specific. And in Mm. the video, he goes through um, all of the uh, landmarks of the Crenshaw-Slauson area um, and 60s. Um, neighborhood, which is where I grew up. So Crenshaw and Slauson, mm. you had Slauson Donuts, um, you have that Pioneer Chicken across the street, <laughs> or Louisiana Fried Chicken, Crenshaw High School, um, all the things that were known to me, uh, Hungry Harold's, Woody's Barbecue, all the haunts that were known to me as a kid growing up in that neighborhood. And it was just like neighborhood Nipsey, um, summer camp, And so I remember telling my brother, I was like, man, um, he's really repping. And I showed my brother the video. And and so we felt sort of a kinship with him because he was representing the area um, that we grew up. And that was 2009, I think, 2008 or 2009. And so fast forward a couple of years, and I came across TMC, that mixtape, 
and I mm-hmm. was like, "This is fire!" Like I, I, I remember thinking, you know what? He he can sort of spit, and that was it. I, I I just thought he was clever. I thought he was funny. I loved all the references, and um, and again, I felt a special kinship to him because he was talking about things that I knew and had seen, yeah. you know, firsthand growing up, and just. Uh, the proximity to my neighborhood where I went to elementary school, um, where I walked to school, um, and you know, where I went from a kid to a, to a young adult. Bitch, nigga, this is my horse. Never kill nothing. You just wait on it to die first. But this going to be the season that you want your niggas fly north. Drop classic at the classic. Streets on fire. Soft rappers can't match this. I ain't doing features even if they got the We talk a lot about neighborhood and geography and music on our other episodes. And I think what's interesting with Nipsey in repping Crenshaw and repping Slauson is that I think if you if you knew anything or grew up in and around L.A., those are names and, and, and neighborhoods that you would recognize on some level, but not necessarily artists tied to it. Um, I think Ice-T might have come out of there at least at some point in his life. Uh, Cube might have, I think, lived in the area uh, at some point as well. Um, if my recollection is correct, I think a lot of um, John Singleton's Boys in the Hood was set around sure the Crenshaw was. area. Sure was. But, you know, it was always, that neighborhood to me was always like most uh, neighborhoods in South LA. It's always in the shadow of Compton. And Compton has, you know, has Dre. Compton has Kendrick. Um, you know, you go further south down to Long Beach, you have Snoop and you have Warren G. And Crenshaw kind of gets lost in that, especially, I think, throughout the course of the 90s. Um, even if Cube grew up there, he wasn't really repping the Crenshaw hard in his lyrics. I think Skilo, if you prefer, though, for folks who remember Skilo, I think Skilo came uh, out of Crenshaw. But, well, you know, Nipsey was someone who, as you point out, uh, Morgan, in his music and in just his life, like he repped that neighborhood hard, perhaps yeah. I think arguably harder than any other artist to have come out of that part of LA previous to him. Absolutely. And uh, Corrupt was also um, from that area. And uh, I remember on, that might've been on uh, Stranded on Death Row where he says, won't you come on over to Crenshaw and Slauson? So he repped for Mm. that area too. But uh, Nipsey came of age in, uh, you know, in a time where, you know, there were a lot of mixtapes being made, self, self-made self kids, and he put that video together and he put Crenshaw and Slauson um, on the map. And looking at that video in prep for this chat, it was just like, gosh, the irony of me coming to know him through that video, which to me was just like a primer in what um, the neighborhood is about in Crenshaw and Slauson, and for him to have built his businesses in that neighborhood and then for him to die uh, right in front of his business. It's just... Marathon. It's yeah. uh, it's almost incomprehensible um, to have, uh, in one sense, made it, um, but then die in the place that built you as well. So, Along those lines, in terms of his relationship to community and neighborhood, could you briefly talk a little bit about what where does Nipsey Hussle fit into the kind of pantheon of LA rappers, because I think one of the differences, and I'm saying this as someone who, again, didn't know a ton about him all said compared to other um, LA artists, is that one of the first things that people, not just in his obituaries, but previous to this, you know, throughout his 20s and early 30s, that if you would hear anything about Nipsey Hussle, is the importance of him going back to his neighborhood, back to his community, opening up businesses, organizations, and the kind of work that he was doing there in ways that I don't think you really hear attached to some of the other names that I mentioned before. And it's not to say that 
folks like Dre or Snoop haven't done work in the community. I'm sure they have, but not to the extent in terms of that kind of rootedness that Nipsey Hussle seemed to have, um, you know, for the '60s and for the blocks in which he grew up with. This this seems to be part of his legacy that I think, in the years that will come, as we remember him, will always loom very large. Well, I think you have to consider the timing. And if you follow Nipsey's career and his early mixtapes on through Victory Lab, he was a man of his word. He kept his word. He said on a great many songs that he was going to take care of his neighborhood and how much 60s meant to him. Mm -hmm. And consider the timing that he started making money was also the time when people started to get interested in South Central again. And not the people that were interested in the the rich history of South Central, but people that saw it as a way to ha- to to live affordably and um, gentrification coming. And so it became, he was a part of the social resistance um, collective, whether he knew it or not, that he was trying to be more of an entrepreneur in the community and build things for the generations. And he was also part of the tech generation with his work with Idris Sandu. He was really... Uh, to me, the classic um, entrepreneur, uh, the the classic businessman. And he had been saying that's what he was going to be since he first came on the scene. So I Mm. I don't think that um, we have seen in the last several years a rapper um, who, who spoke about, I mean, this is not to say that you know, drugs and, and gangster stuff wasn't a part of his lyrics, but a common thread across all of those mixtapes and albums was his desire to build and to live this dream and to take care of his family and to take his neighborhood with him. He recognized the 60s as the neighborhood that uh, that built him and he wanted to build it back up. And mm-hmm. I think that sets him um, apart because although he only got to 33 years. We actually saw him do it. We actually saw saw him right. come from those early mixtapes, as Snoop said at his funeral, that he went from selling mixtapes out of the back of his car to owning you know, half of that block. And what a mm-hmm. prize to own the block that you grew up on. What do you think made him distinctive as an MC? You know, when I... When I look back at his, at some of my favorite um, favorite mixtapes of him, one is the Marathon and the other one is Crenshaw. Before we get to, to Victory Lap, um, I like that his storytelling is a little bit different. That instead of lingering on how tough it was, um, he just, I think his stories were more about the chances he got despite how tough it was. And how he watched the game, that he was a part of the DIY generation. We're going to make it ourselves. We're going to do it without a label. Remember, for most of his career, he was unsigned. And I think what makes him distinctive was he was really literally a self-made man. And a lot of the stories we hear about rappers from back in the day were rappers that were built on the strength of labels that were also building. Bad Boy, Death Row. Um, We could go on and on and on. And this was a self-made man. And I think that's what makes him really distinctive. I think what makes his style distinctive is that um, everything was peppered, as you said earlier, like who can we think of that has repped so hard? Everything was peppered with 60s and Seattle and blue. And uh, that for me made him a hometown hero because I knew those neighborhoods. I knew those stories. And he was a man of his word. I mean, we watched his journey from risk to reward uh, than to more risk. And we can trace that whole journey from his first uh, project 
uh, until the last one. Hit the county jail, make your enemies run that. Mama know my gun clap. Granny know my gun clap. Shoot it out. Fuck that. Duck down. Bust back. To your point about just the kind of catalog that he left behind, I think one of the funny things when you visit his discography is that it's so long, you're scrolling pages and pages yeah. through it. <laughs> yeah. But he only left behind one studio album. His debut, technically, right? His technical debut album didn't come out until last year. And as you mentioned, he called it Victory Lap, which is, you would think, an odd name for a quote-unquote first album, but that it's only really first because it's, I guess, a studio album or what have you. But he put out 13 full-length <laughs> mixtapes, not including compilations previous to that. So in treating his discography in, as with mixtapes and albums basically meaning the same thing as far as, as we're concerned here. You know, you Morgan, you, you like to ask our guests... When, we, when we're talking about a specific album, if there is a song on there that you think encapsulates the essence of that artist. So if we are looking at Nipsey Hussle's discography, is there a release that you think best encapsulates what Nipsey Hussle is all about? I think everything about uh, Nipsey Hussle, his journey, uh, his challenges and his legacy um, all centralize on Victory Lap. But in order to appreciate mm. Victory Lap, you got to stop at the marathon and check out um, some of my favorite songs, One Take Three, uh, Grind Mode, and Late Night Early. And my favorite, which is 2013's Crenshaw album, even if you stop to consider first the backstory, that that's the album that uh, made him a six-figure man. He made $100,000 by selling a 1,000 copies of that mixtape for $100. That's crazy. <laughs> Some people don't even have that in publishing, but he made that off of a mixtape. Yeah. And I that's think, a flex. If, I think if you really want to know who Nipsey Hussle is, Crenshaw album, I mean, you could definitely go to Slauson Boys, but Crenshaw to me uh, tells us a lot about who Nipsey was um, for his people, for us, especially on one of my favorite songs on there, which is called Face the World. Slam the gavel with a racist passion. Got you waiting on the bills, but your patience passing. And all you got to offer is a fight. It's too late to run to Christ once you caught up in this life, love. A couple of songs that really encapsulate you know, the spirit, the vibe, you know, Nipsey Hussle personified. One is Face the World, and the lyrics are, Victory to me is when you spend your time right. Victory to me is when you get your grind right. Victory to me mm. is when you get your moms right. Um, I'm going to skip over those other ones because I know my mother's going to listen to this. Like Jean-Michel Basquiat destroyed his pictures. Self-inflicted homicide, don't pull the trigger. I feel like I got to mm. tell you, you got something to contribute. Regardless what you into, regardless what you've been through, I feel like I got to tell you, you got something to contribute. So face the world now or cry. And what I like about uh, the Crenshaw uh, mixtape is there are a lot of stories on there. I could name check my favorite songs on there. All Get Right, Face the World, which I read, Blessings, and sort of the opus, which is Crenshaw and Slauson, which is the longest um, song on the mixtape. It's almost 14 minutes long. But what I like yeah, is that yeah. the thread that goes throughout all these songs is motivation. 
it's not just, I think, him talking about his dreams on project after project after project or his way of also motivating us. I'm going to go get it. And when I go get it, I'm going to come find you, which is exactly what he did on the corner of Crenshaw and Slauson. He went and got it. He brought everybody with him. And, you know, the sadness is that he, he didn't get a chance to sort of look back, uh, that, that, he, that he didn't get a chance to live long enough to enjoy, in my opinion, um, the pinnacle of, of his success. And it is the death of him is also the death of potential because I would love to have seen him um, two to three years from now. I knew he was going to, you know, to higher heights. Any other releases that you'd recommend our listeners check out if they want to uh, deep dive into the Nipsey Hustle discography? Slauson Boys. Get into Slauson Boys. And that's a shameless plug for the neighborhood <laughs> because there's so much... Uh, there's so much meat in there about Crenshaw and Slauson, so please do get into the Slauson boys. And I gas on niggas in the six now, and I built my lane at a brick pound. Not a broke real nigga or a rich clown. And I coach little niggas in the mix now. Got them thinking pro tools instead of pistols. And I train these bitches like a pit now. Every time that I pull up at the rich now, they be like young hustle, you the shit now. It's amazing the niggas how I get down. Well, Morgan, thank you for sharing all this with uh, both, not just to the listeners, but also again to myself as someone who. Uh, sadly, uh, I did not appreciate Nipsey's work while he was still here, but, um, you know, it's, it's been an education for me to kind of, uh, start d- dipping into everything that he's put out. I mean, the, the sheer amount of music that he put out in his relatively short lifespan was quite astonishing. And, uh, thank you again for sharing your thoughts about Nipsey and what he meant to LA and, and to you, especially as someone who grew up, uh, in the Crenshaw. Well, like a lot of people, you know, I was devastated, um, as you were and many of us were, uh, over his death. And to me, over the course of those next couple of days, the funeral, gosh, all the news releases, it sort of became my own private Gethsemane. I started started asking myself some of the questions, you know, did I sleep on him? Did Did he know these were his last days? If I'd known we were going to lose him, would I have prayed harder? Is there some symbolism to him dying at 33? Um, can we call this a complete legacy or an interrupted legacy? On and on and on. But but thank you for letting us have this conversation um, at the end of the episode so we can sort of honor him, you know, in as best, best we can. It would have been nice to see him um, live uh, long enough to, to have some more heat rocks. But if all we had was the, the albums that I mentioned um, that's good enough for me. Said he met my mom at the Century Club. Los Angeles love, kind of like hustle and book. Money turned 10, cross turned two. Starting to see this life shit from a bird's view. We the ones that made millions off the curve. Fool in this rap shit, 10. Never made nerd moves. Hey, whoa. You keep taking me higher and higher. You've been listening to Heat Rocks with me, Oliver Wong and Morgan Rhodes. Our theme music is Crown Ones by Thess One of People Under the Stairs. Shout out to Thess for the hookup. Heat Rocks is produced by myself and Morgan, alongside Christian Duenas, who also edits, engineers, and does the booking for our shows. Our senior producer is Laura Swisher, and our executive producer is Jesse Thorne. We are part of the Max Fun family taping every week live in their studios in the Westlake neighborhood of Los Angeles, where we are all about the love. We are still looking for some more of those iTunes reviews. Just to remind you all, I know we say this every week, but it is how new listeners find their way to us. And it's been kind of a few weeks since we've gotten some in. So if you do have a chance, it takes like 30 seconds 
please, please think about leaving us a review so that more listeners can find their way to us. And you can do that again in iTunes. We also want to thank our social media fans and family, including Lance W., a.k.a. Looper Vandross. <laughs> nice. <laughs> we want to shout out Brittany Murphy, as always, holding us down. We want to shout out the expert that included us in a gang of podcasts that he really likes. And I want to shout out Dad Bod Rap Pod, because that was one yes. of them. Song Exploder was another one. Soda Jerker. Um, we were in that group, so thank you so much. We want to shout out Bedroom Beethoven's who also included us in a list of podcasts uh, that he loves. Um, ben Jeeman, I hope I'm pronouncing that right. Um, Chris Malanfi gave us a little shout-out. We also want to thank Jason Woodbury, who was a guest. He's from Aquarium Drunkard, and he came in and blessed us with some factoids. PJ Rodriguez. We also want to thank Brent Sirota, Dr. Alexandra Vesey, uh, David Sankey, Gustavo Turner, who always, always holds us down. Thank you so much, um, Gustavo. I think I'm John B. <laughs> they're, not, they're not sure. <laughs> Shout out to, I think I'm John B., Lene Cook, Jazz Tahara, Mark McNeil, um, Adrian McConnell, and last but not least, Mark Richardson and Elliot Hoey. We do so appreciate the Tweezies. And the retweezies. Good to see you, Oliver. Good to see you too, Morgan. One last thing. Here's a teaser for next week's episode, which is number 100 for us here on Heat Rocks. Wow. And for that occasion, it's just going to be me and Morgan talking about 100 Days, 100 Nights by Sharon Jones and the Dap Kings. All of the elements that I um, assign to soul artists and, and real soul, that you have to have this struggle, that you have to have lived, that you have to have done all this... Sharon Jones had done all that. And that's the thing that I think about more now than ever. That for all intents and purposes, she she could have been on stacks. Yeah. You know, that she just happened yeah. to be she she could have been on stacks. Right. It just didn't happen. Right. And if she had come um to prominence a little bit later, it wouldn't have taken her as long because the, the internet would have been here. She would have been discovered <laughs> on Spotify. Someone would have placed her yeah. immediately. Yeah. So the journey wouldn't have, they wouldn't have been biding their time making 45s. Mm. They would have gotten discovered um, a lot earlier. MaximumFun.org. Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Audience supported.